Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. Hello everyone, I think that we can slowly start. Thank you for coming tonight. It's uh, the second event um, of a two-day focus on the work of Françoise Vergès. Yesterday we had a, a very interesting discussion on uh, decolonial feminism. And uh, today we will discuss on the impossible decolonization of the Western Museum. So welcome, Françoise, again, to your Abu Dhabi community. So I would like to warmly thank you, thank all those who made possible this event today, the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute, and especially Nahid Ahmed, Assistant Director of the Institute of Public Programming, as well as my, co my co-lectoral Gajora Varla and the Arts and Humanities Global Crossroads Initiative, who support this event. So I would like to briefly introduce Francoise, and we'll have the, the chance to discuss more of his recent uh, works later on. So Francoise Vergès is a political scientist, historian, film producer, independent curator, activist, and public educator. She grew up in Réunion Island in a communist, anti-colonialist, and feminist family. Her work is transdisciplinary and draws on the theories of political anti-racism, abolitionism, anti-colonialism, decolonial feminism, and post-colonialism. She received her PhD in political theory from Berkeley University. Professor Vergès taught at numerous institutions all around the world, such as Sussex and Brown University, as well as Goldsmiths in London. Francoise Vergès regularly curates workshops with artists, activists, and scholars of color that end with a public performance. She was the president of the French Committee for the Memory and History of Slavery and the chair for Global Souths at the Collège d'Études Mondiales of the Fondation Maison des Sciences de l'Homme in Paris. In 2015, she co-founded the association Decolonize the Arts, and since 2016, she collaborates with the artist Kader Atia in La Colonie, a unique experimental platform that focuses on the decolonization of knowledge, attitudes, and practice. From the Paris Triennial, for the Paris Triennial curated by Okui Envisor in 2012, she curated the public project The Slave in the Louvre, an Invisible Humanity. Professor Vergès has written extensively on memories of colonial slavery and colonialism, Aimé Césaire, Franz Fanon, Édouard Glissant, museums, and the processes of creolization. Her recent publications include A Decolonial Feminism, De la violence coloniale dans l'espace public, and A Feminist Theory of Violence that we discussed, as I said yesterday, and uh, you can find copies of these two uh, books on the feminist theory of violence and a decolonial feminist available for purchase. So I would like to invite Prasnaz Vergès to introduce us to the impossible decolonization of the Western Museum. Well, thank you, Katia, for a very generous introduction. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for the Global Crossroad the Abu Dhabi Institute and you know, all the institutions that help to bring me here. So tonight, this is a part of a forthcoming book uh, that will be released in French uh, next uh, February or March. And we explore the 
impossible decolonization of the Western Museum. And by this, I mean the museum born in Europe in the 18th century, the child of the European Enlightenment, with this ideal of educating the citizen, a top-down pedagogy that will be fully developed, I will contend, with what the French call the civilizing mission. So the museum as a tool to educate the people and the education at the Enlightenment saw it, you know, as how do you understand phenomenon, but it, it led to who possess knowledge and how much that knowledge must be taught. And uh, in the book, I address this question, but I look at different things and tonight it will be just focusing on the first two uh, chapters, in fact. I have long been interested by the museum, you know. I, did, I grew up without museum, there were no museum on Rainier Island. But then later on, I started to be absolutely passionate. And so I visited, the, you know, all of them, the big, the small, whether it's about culture, craft, music, an artist, a school of art, popular history, or a technique. I'm not an art historian, nor an historian of the museum. I approach museum from a decolonial point of view, and I will say more about what I mean by that and you know, from a feminist standpoint. As an institution that contributes to a vision of the world, to narrative about the nation, society, art, beauty. I must add that I worked for 10 years on a project for a museum in Réunion Island for which I suggested the notion of the museum without object. And I will explain that later, perhaps, if you wish. It was a museum of the present, an attempt to create, perhaps, a post-museum in, you know, in the 21st century on a very small island in the Indian Ocean that has no oil, no diamond, nothing, and it's you know, very far from many things. I, I know that post is a very problematic term, and I, you know, I can be very, get me in trouble very soon because what will be the post in the post, and so on and so forth. But nonetheless, for now, let's suggest the post-museum. The project in Réunion was never realized, but it gave me a better understanding of how an institution as a social structure works, as well as the importance, for instance, of the architecture, the way in which the collection is constituted, and the limit of representation. And that was very important, uh, because it, there was nothing. It was not to enter a building, but to build it from really the ground up. So tonight, First, I will clarify by what I mean by decolonization and why I question the possibility of that process for the museum in the Global North. I will go over, you know, very uh, quite shortly, over the Universal Museum and explore the birth of the most iconic and symbolic Universal Museum in the world, the Louvre in Paris, the one that remains a, mod a model to this day. And finally, I will offer some thought on what could be that famous post-museum, you know, considering the fact that it is a desired institution today, a site which for many communities can finally offer visually their memory, their story, their culture. So why is a museum so attractive? And why is the European model still hegemonic? And what could be another model? In my talk, I seek to provoke a conversation. I'm not coming, I'm not bringing you like a full complete theory. It is a contingent work, contextual. I want to share questions I have and that are, I think, more and more urgent because museums today are in the time of pandemics, wars, increased inequality, climate disaster, and the question of restitution and reparation. I was trained, as Katia said, as a political theorist, which means that I'm interested, and also for the museum, in what fabricate consent 
How are things naturalized? How is this possession, colonization, violence, were naturalized or are naturalized? How is the nation, the border, the culture, genders configured and how they interact? And how dissent emerge? What is its vocabulary, its representation? Why terms like dignity, freedom, life always mobilize and make people ready even to die for them? What feed also fear, brutality, solidarity? And I work with history, with image, with sounds, with literature, manifesto, and I always hand with more question. So here I want to read the question of the possible impossible decolonization of the Western Museum, as I say, the child of the European Enlightenment and of its ideology. The decolonization first, to, you know, to clarify what I mean. All social or political movement, whether you know, anti-colonial, feminist, cultural movement, but also state, have considered art and culture of, to be of vital importance to, you know, to represent themselves, to say something. Movement of independence at all cultural and artistic program in their, you know, when they were saying we want independence, we want to be, you know, and the colonial uh, structure. And the, the goal was to show the new nation, but also to talk about the, what is called pre-colonial and the post-colonial uh, configuration. But it was also to imagine the nation in a new world. We can think of the Dakar Festival in 1966, or the Pan-African Cultural Festival in Algeria in 1969. But we could even go back to Bandung 1955, offering new representation, new form of showing oneself to the world. How do you present yourself in your new way? What are the new clothes, your new image through which you represent yourself as you are born independent? In the 1970s, Western feminist movement were quick to denounce the absence of women artists in the art history and in the museum, a work that is still you know, going on. And today's demand for repatriation, restitution, reparation, for better representation of women and artists of the global south and of color in the north are pressing. So a familiar understanding is that decolonization is making space for this demand of representation. But the decolonization did not stop at independence or will not stop because the way in which art history is taught undertake revision. It means the decolonization of the mind, about which Kenyan writer Ngugi Watyongo, Martinique and psychiatrist Franz Fanon, Martinique and poet Aimé Césaire, or feminists of the global source like Fatima Mersnissi, Angela Davis, or Maria Algonas, and many others have written. Formal independence or access to equality are not enough to free the mind of the ways in which colonialism, racism, sexism have shaped representation, image, desire, aspiration. Césaire even suggested that the colonizer must enter their own decolonization processes because of the boomerang effect of colonialism that he said, he wrote, inevitably insinuated itself in their mind, their art, their literature, their philosophy. So decolonization is a long process of deep transformation that, you know, and this transformation are not only economic and political, but also psychic and physical. And they concern the individual and the entire society. However, African philosopher Olufemi Taiwo disagree. Though he highlighted the vicious nature of white racist ideas during colonialism, he also rejects a decolonization that still put 
the European empire at the center of African histories, writing for Africa. We should refuse it right, and I quote, to define the colonized strictly by the colonial experience. And this is wrote in his book, Against Decolonization, Taking African Agency Seriously, which was published this year. I agree with Taiwo's critique of the transformation and decolonization into an all-catch ID, you know, that decolonization every you know, minute, and marginalizing human agency. But I do not think that decolonization as practice in theory and theory into practice can be reduced to what he say. Of course, people of the global south cannot be defined entirely by the colonial period, but the principle of colonization still linger. The way institutions still are being you know, built the way extraction, exploitation, or the north-south, uh, you know, the institution have not been really decolonized. Autonomy of thinking exists, but it's nonetheless still shaped by an environment that also has a local and global dimension. Further, an institution cannot be decolonized if the entire society is not decolonized. I don't see how the museum will be a fortress of decolonization if around the economy, the notion of private property, the notion of gender, or this notion that enter the museum are not decolonized. Decolonization can, of the museum cannot be also only what is on the wall, you know, like, okay, let's have more women and more artists, you know, of the global source of color. It has to be about the structure, about the museum as a total social cultural organization. It questions the limit of representation. It asks if the, if the museum is the best way, you know, is the best form to narrate history. And it has if a colonial invention can fully be decolonized. So let's you know, keep this question. So my second point on the Universal Museum. I have chosen the Louvre uh, in Paris to explore the birth of the Universal Museum because it's, it is not only the child of the European Enlightenment, which you know will put it on the same level than the British Museum or the Natural Museum in Europe, but also the child of the French Revolution, of its ideology that exercised a, long, a strong appeal throughout the world and still liberty, equality, fraternity. And we can understand why, but we can also remember that it had limit, and it was limited when the Asian Revolution occurred. It was all men, men are created equal except some. So equality was not applied then fully. But to that, I mean, the, point, the, the fact that it was a child of the European Enlightenment and of the French Revolution made it a very specific museum in Europe. The Louvre opened in 1793, a very specific also moment, in the first abolition of slavery in a, in a French colony, uh, Saint-Domingue, the future Haiti. And one year before the full abolition of, uh, of slavery in all colony, before it's reestablished by Napoleon in 1802. The Revolutionary Assembly defined the mission of the museum, I mean, as such, I mean, we can go back to the story, but let's keep because I just have 30 minutes. To restore to the French people the artistic treasure that the aristocracy, the church, and the emigres, the aristocrats who have fled, had accumulated upon the exploitation. They will now belong to the only free people in Europe, the French. It was a generous ideal, a politic of reparation and restitution without compensation. Neither the church nor the aristocrat were you know, compensated for you know, uh, the seizure of their art. Uh, and so, you know, but it also soon justifies seizure and looting in the name of freedom. And I will go back to that. In other words, the logic went like this. 
One, France is free from tyranny. Two, Europe is under tyranny, its people, its art, its institution. Three, France has a duty to liberate the heart, enslaved by tyrants, and bring it back to the land of liberty to preserve and them and save them. I contend that this logic, looting, taking in the name of liberating from tyranny, informed the post-slavery colonization and the looting appropriation of art in Asia, Africa, the Caribbean, and the Americas. It also made the universal, imagine in a very small part of the planet, the universal for all. And it was not that art was taken from tyrant to be kept and later returned when the people would be free. It was giving France a prerogative in the name of freedom, a freedom that became confused with the superiority of civilization. And let me quote some of, you know, of, the, 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 what, you know, of that ideology. In 1794, Barbier, who was a lieutenant of Hussar in charge of the Revolutionary Army in Belgium, pro, uh, sent his report to the convention, the Revolutionary Assembly. And I quote, for too long, this masterpiece has been soiled by servitude. These immortal works are no longer in a foreign land. They are deposited today in the homeland of arts and genius, in the homeland of liberty and holy equality of the French Republic. The Cathedral of Antwerp was emptied of its ribbons and sent to Paris. More than 150 paintings were taken also in the Netherlands. And I quote, the French Republic, by its strength, the superiority of its enlightenment and its artists, is the only country in the world which can give an unviolable asylum to this masterpiece, declare Abbe Grégoire. In Germany, more than 800 volumes were taken from the libraries of the Rhine Department. The Republic started to offer itself by 19, you know, the, so the Louvre is open in 1980. 1793, sorry, and in 1794 had already a prestigious collection with art taken in Belgium, Northern Germany, Austria, and soon Spain, Italy, and the Netherlands. Putting an end to the tyranny in Europe authorized the seizure of art, archives, and books by French Republican army, who dream of making France the repository of the treasure of humanity. As I have said, this conception of emancipation and liberation carried the seed of the post-slavery colonial intervention ideology that we can see to this day. It gave it a vocabulary. To free was first to deprive. Voice opposing this policy were rare at the time. But it was Napoleon I who fully applied <clears throat> that policy of, you know, taking to free, you know, for freedom in Egypt, Italy, Spain, and Australia. For the first time, <coughs> sorry. The <coughs> for the first time, the ending over of painting, statue, and manuscript was included among the clause of the armistice. Napoleon imposed as war indemnity on Italian city and the Pope, not only to pay very large sum, but to deliver manuscript and work of art. And I repeat, that was the first time it happened in history that, you know, in term between two states. For the Italian art historian Walter Curzi, the spoliation caused by Napoleon's invasion of the Italian peninsula were nothing less than a cataclysm. They were, and I quote, the first significant dismantling of the Italian aesthetic heritage, and they constituted a traumatic experience for the weak and fragmented duchies, republic, and kingdom of the peninsula. 
But what is interesting is that this looting had to be a spectacle. The seizure had to be exhibited to the French people. And thus, on July 1798, a long procession of court, adorned with garland, paraded from the Natural History Museum in uh, near uh, Garde d'Austerlitz today, and uh, the Jardin des Plantes, to the Champ de Mars. In, on this parade, you had mineral, fossil plants, lion and camel, float with books, manuscript, medal, music, written document, masterpiece of art, like the Cadriga of Saint-Marc, the Venice of the Capitol, the Lacoon or Ampolo of the Belvedere, the Transfiguration of Raphael, the painting by Dominicino, Titian, Veronese. In total, 300 statues and painting, more than 500 manuscripts, seven large portfolio drawings, and 83 volumes of print, as well as a cartoon of the School of Athens by Raphael. And I quote from Pascal Torres, who is an historian of uh, Le Louvre, I quote, this triumph placed Le Louvre Museum at the art of the nation and irreversibly attached the museum to the image of the French Republic. In other words, the unequal prestige of Le Louvre, the Louvre acquired at the end of the 18th century and at the beginning of the 19th century rested on the looting and seizure of the armies of Napoleon Bonaparte. They gave rise to the Universal Museum that will even bear the name of Napoleon, the Napoleon Museum. Napoleon was, one might say, the true creator of Le Louvre. For Pierre Rosenberg, a former president of Le Louvre of the 20th century, at the fall of the Napoleonic Empire, I quote, the Napoleon Museum has become the greatest museum in the universe, which no museum could ever equal in human history, not even the Louvre today. This spectacular universalism, which constituted the golden age of Le Louvre, marks the spirit of the time. And I quote, after Napoleon, museum became an irresistible, irresistible, irresistible sorry, attraction to European nation who perceived the political power they could generate as a symbol of enlightened governance and a driver of superior artistic production, Andrew McClellan has written. This idea spread across the world. No country could afford not to have won, say also McClellan. The Louvre became the model of the repository of art treasure for all humanity. And then I want to show some picture of that. So this is what, you know, the 1889, that was a project for the Grand Gallery. That was how the Louvre was imagined under revolutionary uh, moment. This is Napoleon who receives the French army. So he transformed the Louvre for him. Le Louvre become a place where he, he, you know, he can parade. He is receiving the French army. This is, uh, Napoleon wanted also to have his wedding in Le Louvre. So he transformed, you know, the Grand Gallery. He imposed, you know, that the director of Le Louvre at the time say, oh, this is gonna be complicated. And he say, eat that or I burn it down. And so there was the wedding happening. There was also his visiting Le Louvre. I mean, Napoleon has a real idea about, you know, the museum. He wanted really the museum. This is a, you know, a, a little, uh, uh, cartoon about the army of Napoleon stealing everything, you know, so it's shown that was in 1815 uh, when, uh, you know, the fall of the empire, but it, they show, that was, you know, showing how they grab everything. That's in Napoleon also because, he, as you know, he brought bad things out from Egypt, especially, you know, the obelisk that you do see today, that is how, and that is in, in, in Paris today. 
And this is the parade, because there was a, a, a drawing about the parade in 1783 that we see all the cart, you know, walking, uh, bringing all the looting. This, and this is uh, the only one that remained, and I'm going to talk about that. At the fall of the Napoleon Prior, as I say, European state asked for the restitution of the art. So the, it was the first very large movement of restitution in history. However, not everything was returned because some painting was in regional museum and could not be found. And the argument also was yeah, that things were some very fragile, especially the wedding at Cana or Veronese, because it had been cut in seven pieces to be transported in Paris. And so it became very fragile. And that was the argument not to return it to Italy. And Italy is still you know, claiming it to this day. And Egypt is still you know, reclaiming many objects. To be sure, the spoil of war have contributed through the age to the collection of kings, of emperors, and aristocrats, and private collectors to this day. But none claim, I mean, not the, the kings, but you know, for private collectors, we do know that some objects that were looted in the Baghdad Museum handed in the end of private collectors. But none claim to be made in the name of a republic whose motto was liberty, equality, fraternity. It was a republic which established the law that dictated that work that were stolen, dishonestly acquired, or plundered will become the property of the people. But turning artistic work in spoil of war in the name of revolutionary and republican principle, revolutionary and Napoleonic France paved the way for the modern national museum that expanded then through the 19th century. Post-slavery colonization accelerated the plunder of Africa, America, the Pacific, and Asia in that name. Objects looted from Beijing, Delhi, Angkor, Antanarivo, Benin City came to Europe. Missionaries, settlers, soldiers, governors, merchants, travelers got their hand on everything, combing the most remote village. Nothing was to remain on the African continent, which the European nevertheless said was without history. The European Universal Museum was, at the moment of its creation, contaminated by the notion of liberty that justified taking by force object, archive, and document from other people. So I need to say something now about uh, reparation restitution and you know today as you do know this has been a long demand it started already very soon after african independence african independence state started to ask the restitution of the object but it started to finally you know get uh, in more visible 2 years ago and with a report by Ferwinsau and Benedict Savoy but although, I mean, the demand has always been there, and there have been firmer demand by Egypt, by Greece, and other countries. So when the demand, when in fact, in uh, two, 2002, uh, there was an increased demand by Greece for the return of the Parthenon marble. And there was also growing demand for the restitution of object, you know, by African state. And then there was a moment when you had, in fact, was published a declaration on the importance and value of Universal Museum, which was signed by 30 world leading museums. And they talk about the, and I quote, the importance of, and value of a Universal Museum and object and the fact that object acquired to earlier time must be viewed in the light of different sensibility and value reflective of that era. 
The Declaration mobilized a narrative that reproduced a colonial you know, thinking, in which the global North, through its knowledge of the world, speak on behalf of other culture and did not take into account how other culture can be represented through inaccurate mean, making meaning of Western custodian of art. The document combined a condemnation of the illegal traffic of historical artifacts with an appeal to the idea that, I quote, museums serve not just the citizens of one nation, but the people of every nation. And Philippe de Montebello, the director of the Metropolitan Museum in New York, declared, and I quote, if people stop looking retrospectively at century ago and move forward, then everyone will be on the same page. So the vocabulary, which has been repeated, and I have heard it many times, even when we were talking about you know, how to represent slavery in France when there was this committee on the history and memory of slavery in the uh, 90s, late 90s and early 2000s, and of being caught in the past, of, uh, that it, we need to accept fact we, I mean, people of the global south, that the past is past, and let's look forward. What are the problems with that? Okay. But you know, what is to return already? You know, there is, to begin with, when you talk about a certain um, um, equality of the museum, you know, like as a, as they are, that you have museum in the world, like they are museum, we always forget that in fact, in 2020, Africa and the small island developing state represented only 1.5% of the total number of museums around the world. 61% of museums were located in Western Europe and North America. 18% in Asia Pacific, 11% in Eastern Europe, 8% in Latin America, 0.8% in Africa, and 0.7% in the Arab state. So we cannot talk about the museum when we already look at this incredible deep disparity between North and South. And yet there is also an constant increase in the number of the museum, as I said before. There is a need, you know, that the museum seems to be the only place, I mean, the place that is seen as the best place to represent uh, culture, memory, history. So the number of museums have increased, but the, pand the pandemic of COVID threatened a lot of museums, and many museums will not apparently reopen, especially in Africa and in small states after the pandemic. So the, what is, you know, what is the museum the, because of this disparity? And in then, you know, to go back to the restitution, yes, restitution, but how? Most objects that are returned are being lent. They are not being returned fully. They remain the property of the country, of the European country. You know, for instance, France returns some object to Algeria. They remain the property of the French state, but they are lent to Algeria. And the condition, quite often, is to build a museum along Western norms so that the object can be returned, because otherwise they may be closed. So there is not really a restitution uh, in the sense of, you know, that effectively you give back and the people will do whatever they want to do with this object. In his book, The British, the British Museum, not The British, The British Museum, Dan Hicks, an academic curator and, and author, argued that many museums actually sustain and perpetuate the violence of the colonial era. Every day a, muse a museum containing this object opens its door, he said, it's another day of inflicting violence on the people they were stealing from. He made the claim that 
And I quote, at the border is to the nation state, so the museum is to empire, to devise for the classification of human into type. And Ariela Aisha Azule, the theorist, she say, it is not possible to decolonize the museum without decolonizing the world. Where did I put my vote? So you will understand that to me, decolonization is not a performance, is not to be televised, and it's not to be on Instagram. Decolonization has to be really a long process. And to imagine what will be a museum today, what will be a really a museum that is decolonized, really require much more imagination that, as I say, transforming what is put on the wall. Impossible decolonization and content because it would mean what Aimé Césaire called a Copernic revolution among, you know, the West, in the West. Away from binary thinking, the fact of accepting difference and how and why, and what will be to show culture. Why, first the difference and the Humboldt Forum that just opened in Berlin this year is still showing Africa, Asia, Europe, you know, dividing that and still, what is it, how can we be imagine the post-museum. When I say the post-museum, I really think, as I say again, about its architecture, to begin by its architecture. What is to enter in that space? What does space require as a body which enter that, you know, who enter that space? To be silent, to be, you know, like absolutely like, this is almost like a th cathedral, not to have many seats to sit on, not to have a lot of place for children. What is this place? Why is a museum? Is, is a discipline for the body. And why is that discipline? What does that discipline mean? Why is it naturalized? Why do everyone, when we enter the museum, we think you know, that this is the way to behave in the museum that has been naturalized? I say that because, as I say, when I work on the museum in Réunion-Hélène, the way of entering was very important to us. It was not just a detail. It was not just, oh, well, you have to have a you know, counter and people can buy the ticket and then the place matter. It was already there that something was being said about how to behave and how you will be welcome in that place. That was already there. And then museum, you know, and so, I mean, we, we could talk in, the, in, in debate because I think I'm, going to clo I'm coming close to my 30 minutes. So there are, there are many, many things I could, you know, uh, continue about that. And, uh, you know, and when I say the architecture is really not just uh, most of the museum now are done by star architects, right? It's what the, you know, like, it's incredible that you have to be impressed, you know, like, by the, the architecture, no, rather, you know, what is inside. And that is, can be, you know, discussed. I want to leave you with two quotes. One from Oran Palmuk, the um, Turkish story writer, and I quote, the aim of the present and future museum must not be to represent the state, but to recreate the world of single human being, the same human being who have labored under restless oppression for hundreds of years. And the second quote is from Arun Roy, and I quote, there are really not such thing as a voiceless. They are only the deliberately silenced or the preferably be unheard. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, 
www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute